Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. Uh, we're a show dedicated to answering your questions about media and virtual events. So if you have a question, uh, put them into our question and answer system, Mukana. If you want to find out how to do that, go to our website at officehours.global and uh, join us in the top corner. Uh, we have a fine panel for you today. So uh, Mitchell, what's our first question? First one in, Josh, from Justin Hansen in Phoenix, Arizona. Justin asks, has there been a show where the contributors discuss their experience and education? What careers they're in, how they got started, how they made it? Are they self-taught? Good, Mitchell. I'm probably the bad example. So I'll continue that uh, tradition by saying I did not go to college, although I was accepted at the Syracuse University Annenberg Communication School. But um, at the time, um, I was offered a job at the local Top 40 radio station uh, just getting out of uh, um, 1973 uh, graduation. So in my case, and maybe in the case of others in the broadcasting industry, uh, I learned on the job by doing most every job there was. And I promised myself and my mom that I would learn as much as I could about everything related to broadcasting, not just as a disc jockey, but also as an engineer and uh, as a production guy um, and in, even in sales. So I found that that was a great, um, a great teaching mechanism for me. And to this day, I do have a little bit of a problem when I'm asked to come in and speak to um, students about uh, their career choices because I, I don't think that uh, telling them that you don't have to go to college uh, is, a good, uh, is a good choice to recommend to anybody. You have to make up your own decision. So in my case, uh, four years uh, as a disc jockey working in a radio station taught me pretty much all I needed to know. And then I moved on to the big time in Philadelphia, and uh, that lasted for about two years, and then I got fired. Uh, so here's the thing. You might learn a skill, but sometimes that skill takes you to a job where there's no equity. And having an education gives you equity that you can take with you for a long period of time. So as a, as a uh, disc jockey, I found that, uh, sorry for the long answer. Uh, as a disc jockey, I found out there's really no equity in it because you're only as good as the last rating period you had, and you have to be prepared to move all over the country. So in my case, um, it was unusual circumstances. For other people, it might be a difference. So your results may vary. I have to admit, when I looked at this question, I, I said, has there been a show? I don't know. Have, has there been a show? Oh, this show. Right. They want to know if we've done something on this show. Right. Um, Dave? Well, that, that was where I was going to go with the question is we haven't had a, actually a show where people, you know, the subject of the second hour was to go through our career history. And so I, I think it's the sort of thing that gets talked about on Sunday when we're doing our uh, deep thinking. And that is not recorded, so there are no records uh, of what people have, have said is their career path. Um, to go with what Mitchell was talking about, uh, I started as a volunteer, both in television and in audio. Uh, volunteered to help out with um, a major concert production. Uh, volunteered to work on uh, hockey games as a cameraman. I volunteered in uh, campus radio while waiting to get into communication school. And then when I came out of communication school, I got work um, in what we call community television and learned to be a producer, to do scheduling, project management, uh, time management, all the things that came along. And those little learnings along the way with my mass communication uh, certificate 
uh, allowed me to get some pretty prestigious jobs and my house paid for and all the rest. So it was a climb. Uh, it was on a few mountains in the way, and then eventually it plateaued and I was able to reap the rewards. And uh, I'm with Mitchell on, you know, do go to a school and find a good one. Uh, don't go into debt too much to do that, but go into school to get the basics and then apply those in the practice of it. Because if you get in with good teams, listening to what they're doing, and that was the first lesson I learned in audio. I was work, uh, volunteering under a, a fellow who was one of the leaders in stereo television when it first came out. And uh, he mentored me for about two years there. And he said, you got to learn to listen. And when I was working with a high-powered lighting director who was actually on strike at the broadcast and came to help us out because he was bored, uh, he taught all of us how to see light. And so all of those little uh, personal indicators, the things that they did and showed, uh, stuck with me. And then I ended up being able to do all those things myself. Yeah, it's a, a nice little reflection that uh, we can take. And, um, you know, it might be interesting if someday we had like a panelist profile you know, told you about the experience and the backgrounds of of the different panelists uh, that were on for the day. Mitchell? Yeah, if you're, you know, we've been talking about broadcast and TV. Um, remember the old ads, uh, the Columbia School of Broadcasting, not affiliated with CBS. Um it was a, a way to get an introduction uh, to broadcasting, but you could probably get the same introduction by just going on a tour of your local uh, radio or television station. Um, and today, with the, the competitiveness of uh, the industry, um, I just want to kind of backpedal this a little bit. Um, I don't think you can just hang your hat on uh, that particular skill of being a presenter or a DJ uh, because it's now media. And media is a lot deeper and a lot more technical, and you need to get more of an education in those particular areas. So I recommend that, you know, you're not 68 years old. Um, you've already been through that like I have, and maybe Dave has. Um, it's uh, it's best to get the education so that you have a much broader um, uh, ability to uh, deal with those areas. Yeah, and definitely some transferable skills, though. Um, and um, <clears throat> it's good to have... You know, your, your hand in, I know a lot of us on the panel have our hand in a couple of different um, fields, which gives you a nice perspective as well. Um, specialization, something to say for that as well. Let's go to our next question. Next question is in from me. Uh, when creating tutorials mm -hmm. on the Mac, what is the best screen capture software to use to show what's happening on the screen? Go ahead, John. The two industry leaders, uh, Mac specific, would be one called ScreenFlow. That's grown really large and has gotten quite bloated. The other big one is Camtasia. That's uh, also available for PC. I would recommend if you're looking into it and you want something a little on the less expensive side, there's one called Capto, which is a really good product, or QuickTime has a recorder in it, which is free. TJ? Yeah, John mentioned my answer. QuickTime built into the Mac, which is free. Uh, Command Shift 5, if I recall correctly, will bring up the interface to record. You can either record the entire screen or portions of the screen, that uh, whatever you want. Serge? Depending on what you need, QuickTime will do it, but will also create large files because the QuickTime by default will create greater quality than most needed for a visual tutorial. I also use uh, only use my ATEM to be able to 
uh, grab the signal from my Mac, I usually dedicate a Mac, a MacBook to what I want to show. That way I'm not sharing the same Mac for any other software and my tutorial will be clean. Dave. Yeah, the Mac software I've always used for making uh, documentation or manuals or that sort of thing about how software works uh, is Command Shift 4. And it uh, allows me to draw a box around what I want specifically to highlight. Uh, it allows to capture menus that if you bring a menu down before you do the Command Shift 4, the menu stays in the frame and highlights. Uh, as well, when you want to capture just a window, uh, you have to hit the shift, uh, the space key rather, and you get a camera, and then it'll click inside the window and just capture the window, not the whole screen. And that allows you to get the shadow on that, and it looks really good in documents. Uh, you can also turn the shadow off too. Um, Command Shift 3, I think, is what gets me the whole frame, the whole screen, and that's high-resolution stuff, so you have to post-process it. And like Serge was saying, when you're using the QuickTime stuff, you may have to post-process and, well, of course, edit afterwards uh, to get all your mistakes out. Mitchell? Uh, yeah, thanks for all the advice. Uh, I'm looking for something, because I'm lazy, uh, that does a lot of things for you. I've noticed on tutorials uh, that if you're in an area that's small and uh, detailed, that you can zoom in on it, or you can highlight it with a uh, circle, and it shows you where you're clicking, um, some of those things. I'm thinking of doing a tutorial for After Effects on um, creating credit rolls. It's, uh, believe it or not, it's it's a lot more sophisticated than you think uh, to get a smooth credit roll. So I'm playing around with this as an idea. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, I'll keep you posted on what I'm doing and how it's coming along. I appreciate the input. Guy. Yeah, the way I would do it is real time. I would rehearse, 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 and rehearse some more, get really good at it, and then... Go ahead and uh, use Memo Live as your recorder and use NDI. Uh, so one computer would run vMix desktop capture software on the Mac. That'll shoot it over to your Memo Live. You hit NDI as an input, and then you can record in ProRes LT, and that'll give you, you'll want a big ass, hard, excuse me, big hard drive. <laughs> and that way you can record lots and lots and lots and lots of tutorials, and uh, it'll edit very smoothly. So trust me, I've done a lot of it. I've seen that model. It's hard to come by. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I just wanted to add it for Mitchell's benefit that the Mac uh, allows you to zoom in on the screen. And if you put your mouse somewhere on the screen and then you use the shift and the up and down arrow keys or even the trackpad, it'll actually expand the screen. And then it'll capture to the resolution of the screen so you can actually enhance the picture by zooming in and then capturing. Nice tip. I, you know, other things that are unique to the Mac. Uh, Mitchell, I don't know if you were intending on having your camera on while you're doing the tutorials, would that mean that the infamous orange dot would be present on whatever screen that you're capturing? Um, I think it only, most of these softwares that are being discussed here only show the actual application, which is in the uh, focus. Uh, so that's a more of a menu line item that, uh, that might show up. But um, I'm very interested in it because now, you know, I've seen so many tutorials over the years and I know what I like. Uh, and now that I'm going to do it, I think Guy made an interesting point. It's not really the software. It's your ability to uh, repeat the uh, the lesson uh, and demonstrate in real time exactly what you're doing. And that's uh, what I want to do. But I've, I've, got a, I've got a little itch, and you know how it is with that. Guy, you have more to add? Yeah, you should do it, Mitch. Um, 
yeah, I've made tons of these. So uh, the other thing that you could do if you're doing it in real time or if you're doing it in front of people is on the Mac, there's a universal software control where you can um, use some of the handicap features where you can zoom in with a keystroke. So um, if you want to punch in, like Dave was saying, you can do it in real time. So when I was a Final Cut instructor, I used to use that all the time. So And also for tutorials. But if you want to do it in post, you can do it in post as well. Nemo Live also has a way of, of setting up some presets so you can set up those quadrants. If you know that you're going to punch into a certain spot all the time, you can set whatever resolution you want to punch into. I believe um, Apple has changed their window capturing um, API uh, for some apps. And it might be interesting to know whether your solution, whether it takes advantage of the new API. I know that it was... Um, um, Pretty pretty tough to grab onto Windows. We talked about doing that as opposed to a screen capture. Uh, Serge? Be sure that if you're only capturing one application, that's the tutorial will cover everything you need. Because I know for the tutorial I do, I need to capture the full screen of the computer because sometimes I will move file around in the finder and things like that. So I cannot just capture one application. I need to capture everything. And as Guy said, uh, Repeating and having a one-shot deal is a good thing. But again, uh, in the kind of tutorial I do, I need to post it and fast forward a few sequence so the tutorial is more watchable than just wait for the completion of a task. And Mitch? If I were doing it uh, live, you know, at least live to tape um, or hard disk, uh, it would be um, mostly After Effects, but then you'd want to show the finished product, and so you'd have to have it pre-rendered out. So like a cooking show, like, well, here's the result, and 30 minutes later, um, and then have it rendered out. But uh, my my thinking on doing this particular tutorial um, is I like the series of uh, tutorials that Andrew Kramer does over at videocopilot.net. And um, what he does, and I think it's a specialty, and I really would like to, to repeat it, is don't have an After Effects uh, loaded with plugins because I do have all those plugins from everywhere, but do it all with whatever it is that's that's native to that particular program so that everybody's on the same playing field. So because there's nothing worse than going into a tutorial and then you have to buy this plugin to render out a particle or something else. So wouldn't it be cool to do all of this with just expressions and practical effects that are already built into it? So that's kind of my thinking. And guy. Yeah, just to demonstrate this real quick, if I cut over to my Mac, it's it's in the uh, uh, system settings, uh, accessibility, and then the keyboard shortcut is here. So you, you can uh, punch in with uh, command option plus and minus. So that's not a very big zoom there, but you can actually adjust those settings um, to make it so it zooms in more, but the, that's where they're at. You can also use the uh, scroll, uh, scroll gesture. So again, that's in the accessibility portion. Um, to allow that setting and that's how you do it all right fantastic so mitchell got you uh some nice tips for screen recording but i think it helped our community out as well thank you panel let's go to our next question and it's from shane ditmar in brooklyn new york is there a microphone similar to the mv7 that doesn't use a touch panel for control as a blind user i'm worried i'll not be able to control the microphone independently go ahead Serge. Uh, the microphone I use, a Samsung Q2U, it's uh, pretty affordable and uh, it's going to, uh, I think the panel agree a good job to make my voice sounds pop, uh, so not so bad. Um, 
the control on it are physical and uh, are not touch. So you have a plus minus and you have a mic uh, on off button. So I think it's pretty neat. Nice. Thanks for that. I know that um, some of us use uh, independent uh, mute controls. Harshid? Yep. Uh, you cut that right off my, my palette here. I would get a mute switch for muting, but um, I have an SE Electronics V7 microphone, but they do make an SE7 switch, which actually has a, a switch that could, you know, turn it on and off. And it has... Uh, I think a shock mount built in, so it doesn't make noise when you flick it on and off. I haven't tried it personally. Um, other microphones that I could suggest, like the Q2U is a cheaper, excuse me, <clears throat> it's a cheaper way to get in uh, for cheap. Uh, $70 is, is what I would call cheap, but it, the quality is about a 16-bit uh, versus a 24-bit that you'll find from your MV7 and Ambition uh, Impaired 2, so I, I could totally uh, sympathize you, with you with that. Um, and the other one, uh, the Waves XLR is okay, but that's also going to give you the same issue uh, or the Waves microphone. So uh, my suggestion would be more so try to see if the microphone has an on-off switch. And uh, to keep it simple, uh, if you get the MV7X and if you're going to use XLR, for example, um, I would highly suggest to go with that one particularly because it doesn't have the DSP settings that you would get from the USB side. Um, if you're looking for USB alone, there are quite a handful of microphones. SC Electronics makes a Neom. Uh, people have mentioned the DX from Rode. So they are plentiful out there if you're trying to go USB only. Uh, if you're trying to go XLR, I would say don't get a combo because you usually get better quality from just the XLR alone microphone. So MV7X or anything that says X at the end of the, uh, the name typically means that they're an XLR only mic. Thanks, Harshid. Mitchell? I actually have a question for Harshid. Is it better to have a mic with a switch on it, which is usually not what... Um, uh, people that don't have the handicap have, but having it actually on the mic so that you always know where to go to if you're uh, if you need to mute or turn it on and off. And then my next question is, um, having a device like your SSL with the big knobs on it uh, provides a much more of a tactile control. Do you find those much more useful? So with my setup, I have an SSL2, which uh, right now is around $180 if you're interested in getting one. The reason why I got that personally was for gain issues. Most microphones need juice, and sometimes you'll you'll kind of be limited. So I have two knobs that are main knobs that I need to mess with, uh, one being the gain knob. Um, I have two XLR ports. So I have two knobs, individual uh, knobs for each XLR port. Um, I have a 4K button, so it's a square button that I smash on, and it will change my voice, uh, give you a little bit of presence. I could turn it off right now. Just give me a second. Okay, so now the that, that 4K button is turned off. So my voice is going to be just nice and dry and simple. No, no processing, nothing like that. To answer Mitchell's question, with having buttons on your microphone or, or to on and off, I get it for stage use, but for the for my microphone specifically, the uh, SE Electronics V switch V7 switch, I would want that because it is going to act like a mute switch. Uh, the Q2U, it did act like a mute switch where I would just power it down and I don't have to fiddle with zoom, even though hitting Alt A or Command Shift A will mute and unmute, um, you know, globally. But I always find it more difficult to, to 
to not have a switch because you you might be hot and you don't realize that you know you're without a switch um the other component with the knobs they don't give me much of a indentation but they do uh have a nice and gentle uh, movement so if you're if someone says go up a couple db i could move it where the slide slightly moves and then testing on the meters it works out um, an idea that i have for the community if we could get somebody to work with let's say ocr and if 24 is our luff number uh, i would love to have a dog woof you know here this this kind of when you when it sees a 24 it says woof uh we could make a meter like that couldn't we we have some, a wolf meter. That's great. Yeah. You, so when it hits twenty, <laughs> if you if you're talking and and you're listening, and remember always, please wear headphones. Don't have open mics. So if you're if you're gonna have headphones on, you'll hear wolf in your ear, and then you know you're at twenty four. So let's get on that. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we'd probably have to have some way of turning it on and off. Otherwise, there'd be a lot of woofing uh, in the show every time we uh, we hit the bell. But that's great. Um, we had some. Uh, folks that uh, agree with you there in the chat, um, a few people mentioned about the the Yeti and the Yeti clones, uh, the Behringer Bigfoot. They have a, a mute button on the uh, control themselves. It is color indicated and it is pressed, but it's toggle as well. Um, Mickey recommends having the tactile controls on the interface with an XL mic as you did, uh, Harshid. And uh, Mitchell? Yeah, I'd be concerned about anything that's a power switch because it's likely the thump when it's uh, engaged. So I would be careful of that. Yeah, it's a valid concern. All right, let's go to our next question. Next question in from Clive Kitchener from Sup BC Canada. I'm wondering if any panel members ever fell victim to the Peter principle. Did you recognize it at the time? What were the circumstances? Names can be changed to protect the innocent. Be brave. PP defined here. John, I imagine you know what the Peter Principle is. Yeah, the Peter Principle is the idea that people will be promoted to their own level of incompetence. So you'll get to a position, you'll keep doing good at your job, get promoted, do your job, get promoted, until you start doing bad at your job, and that's when you'll stop being promoted. So in, so companies get to be, have the worst people in every position, essentially. And I, I don't think anyone would ever recognize they themselves have fallen victim to it. Otherwise, they would probably not try to get promoted to that level. I like to hope that I've not fallen victim to the Peter principle, but I've had several situations with especially new leaders, people who move from individual contributor to a manager position. A lot of people that I've had experience with forget that their new job is to help bring the best out of their team instead of produce the work themselves. Dave? I have a slightly different perspective on the Peter principle because twice in my career, I became irrelevant rather than incompetent. Um, I was superseded, um, well, in one uh, situation, a new manager took over for a, another manager I'd worked under for a long time. And the new manager had new ideas about how things should go, as they do. And then I discovered that I knew a lot more about it than he did, and he didn't like that. So then I became irrelevant, uh, no matter what I suggested, or no matter what presentation I made or ideas they uh, wanted me to come up with, they were never good enough. So it wasn't incompetent because I knew it was my time to leave. And that was twice where I realized that I'm not going to progress any further. I've run into a wall rather than a level of incompetence. And so I pushed myself out of the job and, and worked somewhere else or did other things. Uh, and it was necessary for me to see that. Uh, when I was, the first time it happened, it was quite traumatic. But then the next time I saw 
I was becoming irrelevant, I just made myself um, leave. And actually, I jumped into a much, uh, much more interesting position afterwards. And Mitchell? Plus one of what Dave just said, I uh, appreciate that. And just to show you that I knew uh, what the actual quote of what the Peter Principle is, I'll cover my eyes and say, in a hierarchy, everybody tends to rise to their level of incompetence. That's the actual quote. And it's in my yearbook is my favorite quote. So uh, the best time I ever learned that was uh, when I left radio, I built my own studio. Um, I ran the board uh, as an engineer and an editor and producer. I was pretty darn good at it. And then I got more uh, um, uh, I got more successful with it, and I hired an engineer to come in and do do that job. And I moved myself to the front of the office for sales and uh, accounting and other things. And uh, here's where the Peter Principle came into a play. You can see it coming. Um, I was a lousy manager of my own business. Um, and I really, really, what made me personally happy was being in that studio, but I'd hired somebody to do that job. So there's a classic example of, uh, becoming irrelevant, uh, in an organization and proving the Peter principle. Yeah. And one question I actually have about the Peter principle is, is it considered, um, that effect if there are, there is not a better candidate for the job? Um, I know that, uh, working in, uh, in the trades and crafts, um, they would often promote the person that was most proficient at their job to be in management, who may not have been a good manager. Um, they may have been the best at their trade or the best at their craft, but not necessarily management material or being able to, to work with people. So I wonder, some, I know some people are in positions because they, there's no better better candidate. So probably being aware of that, uh, is best understood. Dave. I, I think, uh, in a couple of cases, I realized I was no good at that job and shouldn't accept the offer of the promotion. Uh, I knew that I could create a lot of chaos or, uh, not conform to what the institution wanted. And so I just stepped back and said, no, no, that's fine. I'm happy where I am. Um, and and to Mitchell's thing, yes. Once once you become a sort of contractor and you're doing your own thing, uh, you wear a lot of hats, a big pile of them, and some of them you're going to do well, and other ones you're not going to do well. So it's it's recognizing that I need another person who is competent can take over that part of what we're doing. Serge, I have uh, a lot of experience in IT in the IT world. And we have the same issue of the, the best IT person or the best technician you've got. Sometimes it's the guy that came manager and it's not a good manager. But the other way around, sometimes you have a good manager that does not have enough technical skill. And the guys underneath just say, well, you don't understand what I need to do and you don't, you don't understand the technical stuff. So they just push away. So the balance between someone that it's good technical and a good manager is rare and that's to find the, the right people. All right. Thank you. I think we had some good insight on that. Let's go to our next question from Josh Kaufman. Oh, he looks familiar. He's right there. Uh, he's in Pittsburgh PA and right here on the panel today as our host. What are the office hours team opportunities that are available? TJ. Uh, so Every day running the show, there's a collection of, oh, say maybe 20 to 30 people that actually put the show on. 
but we're not all working all together on the same day. So um, we need more people to come and help out because we all have lives and we all have jobs. And sometimes those interfere with putting on the show as much as we wouldn't like that. Uh, you don't have to be necessarily very technical. Uh, we have positions from people managing the Mukana system and the questions that are happening. We have people who are learning and managing the show, the cutting, the uh, actual technical direction of the show. We have people who are um, engineering the show and developing the systems. So if you are a bit more technical, um, your expertise could be used there. We also have people who are uh, what we call uh, greeters. Uh, we greet the panel, um, process the panel, make sure they're, we prep the panel, make sure the panel and the guests are ready to go on stage and do technical checks for them. And so, um, well, a lot of opportunities for helping out are available. For those who are going to work with the panel, we ask that you are panel ready yourself. Generally, uh, in order to know what needs to uh, be good for the panel, you have to be uh, ready to go on the panel yourself. Um, so, and I believe there's a place where people can learn how to sign up to volunteer. There is. Um, I'll follow up, back up, but Harshid? A couple of words. Team accessibility. Um, the team around office hours has been really wonderful at taking in uh, notes that we all put in through the Mukana system, uh, through being on a panel. I'm about 90 some odd days straight. And anybody could be part of this team. Um, accessibility is just one component, and we're all learning from each other. Uh, we were talking about control, command, shift, five, and three to record screens. I thought those are voiceover commands, but I'm mistaken. So, you know, we have a lot of teaching that we could do to, uh, for each other, and it's a huge opportunity because if you look at the world today, everybody's trying to fix what they didn't start with, which was accessibility. Yeah, we do have some... Um, visually impaired uh, folks that work in the back and they do take make uh, use of some um, some tools to help out. Uh, Dave? Well, one of the areas that's emerging in our team are people to coordinate things, uh, not necessarily technical expertise, not necessarily background in the video or editing or lighting or anything. Uh, it's people who know how to be organized. And the more we do our special projects and the more we're branching out into other labs and that sort of stuff, there's a level of coordination involved there that if you have any background in scheduling, presentation, organizing, or helping people, um, it's a great place to, to jump into the team and be a background helper who isn't necessarily appearing on the show or uh, operating any of, the, any of the technical. And I think as we go forward into other ventures with OH and After Hours and labs, we're going to need more people who can handle uh, the coordination of people and resources for all those things. Mitchell. Yeah, it's a good point, Dave. And um, I, I'm here basically to talk about the reader's job. Um, I know it's just one of many jobs that are available, but uh, we teach a, uh, a workshop on Wednesdays at 3 Pacific, 6 Eastern. Um, if you go to After Hours and go into one of the breakout rooms, you'll see where it is. And that's for anybody that uh, would be interested in doing exactly what I'm doing here today as a reader, uh, reading questions. Uh, it, uh, it helps you with your elocution. Did I pronounce that correctly? Elocution uh, and other uh, things, yeah, uh, things related to uh, being an announcer or voiceover person. It's a lot of fun. Um, one of the requirements is, of course, you need to be a panelist. So 
Uh, if you're just curious about it and uh, not necessarily, uh, you know, going for uh, becoming a reader, come join us on the thing. You might learn a few interesting tidbits of information. Um, but uh, it's a lot of fun being a reader. And weekends, we generally break people in. So what am I doing here? I think everybody's recovering from Thanksgiving here in the U.S. John? The hours that office hours happens aren't convenient for everyone to volunteer at that time every day. Uh, I'm hoping someone can speak to the opportunities at other hours of the week. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, for those that don't know that there's, you know, TDs behind the scenes that are cutting and there's lots of learning going on. I'd love to see more people watching that. Uh, you have an opportunity. There's a sign up if Josh or somebody can put a link to Makana where people can get in there and watch that. It, it's basically a webinar where you can go in and you can see the multi-view. You can see uh, if somebody shares it, you can see the universe interface. And Richard Lavery did a uh, episode where he showed that interface. It, it's really cool. I, I wish that we had like a, a dummy or mock one where more of us could could play with that because only you know one hands on the wheel at the time uh, at a time for that uh, that position. But yeah, it's it's really cool. If you guys, uh, for those of you that are listening, you should get in there, sign up, and go watch what's going on. It's fascinating. Sometimes when I'm not on the panel, I'll go in there and watch. It's it's really neat because you learn a lot. And uh, TJ, yeah, the. Uh... Weekends tend to be a really great time for a lot of learning. Um, the shows are slightly more relaxed, especially the Sunday show. So that show is not recorded and gives us um, opportunities to uh, expand and challenge ourselves a little bit. And um, if we make a mistake, it's not a critical mistake. And we just keep on moving. So uh, sign up and um, volunteer on the weekends. Yeah, and... Um the, how do you sign up? Well, uh, in every email, you'll notice that there's team opportunities that's mentioned uh, there. So under the team opportunities, um, right now we have the, the typical show that we're doing. So we have the Kilo show there, um, by the way, a new channel there uh, to put in your suggestions and, and vote those up. But featured in every email is the Feltus form to sign up for training. So when you sign up at officehours.global and sit, join us, you'll be get an op, you'll get an option to have the email. In the email, you have the link here, and there's a form that you fill out that you can say you know what exactly you're interested in in helping out with. There's all the different um, uh, positions that we use every day to run the show. There's the pre-show coordinator that TJ spoke about, our question manager that helps out with Makana, our technical director that actually cuts the show and does a lot of the artistic direction, our panel liaison. It's the um, structured way in which we communicate to the panel and on the crew. We have an RFI documenter because we're always interested in our room for improvement. So that's important for compiling uh, records that we can uh, use as well as our development. And we have graphics as well um, on the show. If we have uh, the graphics personnel, you'll see that our shows have more graphics on those days than others. The reader tab is also available on the sheet that we use to, uh, to uh, actually, I can show. So the one of the places that we we have to to sign up for is is the the reader uh, is is on that sheet too to sign up for as well. As Mitchell mentioned, you want to be a panelist first, 
then reader and then his other opportunities that, you know, once you get acquainted for, it kind of lends itself to, you know, learning the base and then moving forward. Um, also on that sheet is volunteer crew coordination. So it's not all in front of the camera or behind the camera, but if you'd like to help organize the volunteers, um, if you can operate a spreadsheet, then you're valuable and you're helpful <laughs> with us. If you can you know, take command of organizational tools, those are helpful too, because there's a lot of coordination that goes through as well. Um, typically the training that we do is focused on the weekends. So all of our training roles are available on the weekends. And we recommend that uh, folks get in early, especially because some of the roles, a typical role that you'll start at would be the pre-show coordinator that uh, TJ spoke about a little bit. And these are the, these are the people that make sure that everyone onboarding onto the panel is set up and they control the ingest of that. So there you'll be able to listen to the heartbeat of the, uh, of the, of the show over comms. You'll be able to see um, what Mukana is doing there. And from there um, you can move on to some of the other positions to help out. And we're not going to throw you uh, under the bus or, you know, uh, we're not going to hang you out to dry on your first time uh, coming through. Um, Guy mentioned uh, being able to, to, to see the show and you know, see the way that things work when you volunteer. That's a bit of a perk right now. So we don't have any comms access or any special place to view the, the back end of the show. But if you volunteer, it is a, it is a nice perk that you get to see all of the, the workings that move the show back and forth. So all of our training possibilities are available on the weekend. There is one position that you can train up for every day during the week, and that's the pre-show coordinator role. So in that role, you can sign up, which is a good place to start. Uh, if you have a weekday that's off, um, you have that that option to be available there because that comes before our show. So we don't um, do our training whenever we have our live show during the week. And uh, Dave? Well, I'm going to speak as a newbie because I've only been part of OH for about eight months. And I was brought along very slowly and very carefully uh, I think it was a whole month uh, for me to just learn RFI, and then there was another month for learning Mukana. So I didn't become a panelist until after I learned that, that layer of things, and it's the path I went through to, to where I am now. Uh, but I think, you know, it's, it's a slow process, but we'd love a lot of people to try and get into that process and uh, move people in. Yeah. So, um, check that out and, um, yeah, hopefully you'll, uh, find it interesting or some, some way to, to help out in the show, but we must move on. Let's go to our next question. From Jesse Mills in San Francisco Bay area. What are the best enterprise level AV system monitoring and management packages that can interface with all of the common players such as Crestron, QSIS, Extron, and Bayan? Hmm. Good question, Jesse. I think you might have stumped us, maybe particularly with that uh, requisite that they interface all of them. So maybe resubmit and um, hopefully a, a, another panel might have the answer for you. Let's go to our next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana asks, anyone tried out the Nreal Air AR glasses that are supposed to specifically be M1 half compatible? Let's see, has anyone tried them? I'm looking at them now. 
think that's M1, not... M2, Mitch, not M1 half. Thanks so much. Gotcha. We, we haven't had any uh, extra releases. Um, I have not, uh, but they look interesting. Let's go to our next question. Paul Valhus in Austin, Texas. A guy on YouTube makes clips of the Texas games on TV. The clips are of every play of the game. Is this actually fair use? Each clip was just the play, nothing in between. And here's the channel. He has a link for it. Yeah, looks like he has about 3,000 subscribers. I've not got a chance to look at that. As far as fair use, I can't tell you as to as to what would would constitute that or not um yeah um i would think that um the biggest objection might be to um uh the people that are uh overseeing their the, the plays or the practice go ahead serge alex in the chat just said that it's not fair use and i tend to agree with him i'm not an expert but it doesn't seem fair use anyway uh, most of the podcasters I, I watch for sports game or for hockey, they will use screenshot, but they will never use the real feed of the game itself. Yeah, um, just because uh, they're getting away with it doesn't necessarily mean that, that everything's okay. Let's go to our next question. Al Trivet in Carmichael, California. Can anyone in the Office Hours Brain Trust provide any feedback on the use of Topaz Labs video AI software? Currently on sale for $159 US. Hmm. Has anyone had a chance to look at that? Let's see. Track sharp 4K at buttery smooth 60 FPS. Go ahead, Mitchell. I, I have not used it. Uh, sorry, I can't answer the question, but I have used other Topaz filters, and they're all good. So based on that experience, I would definitely uh, consider in, investing in this. It says uh, unlimited access to the world's leading production-grade neutral, um, sorry, neural networks for video upscaling, deinterlacing, motion interpolation, and anti-shake. Okay, well, it's significantly discounted, so... There you go. Uh, Guy? Yeah, I have a friend of mine that's a local sound guy, one of the top dogs, and he he went through and found a bunch of VHS footage from uh, stuff that was shot in the 80s, and he put some samples up on online, and we we're blown away by how well it works. So if that's something you're doing, I believe there's a trial version as well, but from the stuff that he put up, I was shocked. It was way better than what I was doing in real time with hardware. So the AI is, if you could wait, you know, if you can process it or if you have a fast computer, then it's worth looking into. And is that um, is that the uprising um, application guy? Yeah, it is. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. So he was taking standard def stuff that was shot on a VHS that was interlaced, and he was uprising it to 4K, and it was coming out pretty nice okay. compared to just the regular straight. I actually have heard some some good things about about that for Topaz. Uh, someone in After Hours was was talking about it. Let's go to our next question from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. Guy Cochran, the LG 43UN700B monitor, UHD 43-inch, loses its config if you are in four-screen PIP mode, picture-in-picture -picture mode, and full-screen on any of its inputs. Have you experienced this or any other glitches? Also, can you Visa mount it? Okay, we'll get the guy, but first, we'll ask Mark. So I, I wanted to go first just because I have a, uh, a little 
slide here that shows that there's actually two LG 4300 UN700 monitors. One has a T, and the T gives you four little legs, and the other one is just the B, and it has one massive heavy pedestal. If you take the pedestal off, you have a visa mount. If you take those four little legs off, you have a visa mount. The only difference I've noticed between the two monitors is that the monitor with the single pedestal doesn't have room to put those legs in it, doesn't have the little slots. I have, we have a ton of these monitors, and I haven't experienced any issues with them in terms of going from four to one and back to uh, four again. Okay. Yeah, well said there, Mark. I did just test it. I, I leave mine in the four-up mode because I'm just using it as... Um has four monitors uh but i did just test it to try that and yet it <laughs> it uh did not return back to the way that i wanted it so if you go from four to one and then back you're going to lose your config and there is software that you can uh put on your pc if you plan on doing that uh a lot and then that should be able to let you load the config right back but yeah it just took a couple extra presses of the remote control to get me back to where i wanted to be all right let's go to the next question from Douglas Carmichael, has anyone heard near ultra near field desktop monitors like these from Cali Audio? There's a link to it. While they don't have the bulk of near fields, they seem useful for smaller desks. Good, Mitchell. I I do not know much about what an ultra near near field is, but to give it a little context. Near-field monitors are monitors that generally you put right in front of you at 45 degrees uh, tilted in so that you're at the apex of that uh, triangle that's being made. And uh, the only thing that comes to mind when I think of ultra-near-field headphones or just strap a couple of speakers to your head. Well, I can see them, but I can't hear them. So there you go. Um, We'll have to see if someone has some personal experience with them. Next question. From Douglas again, in the technical specifications of many arenas and stadiums, they mentioned that their house PA systems can be also used for augmenting a touring PA system. How do you align the output of both systems so they arrive at the listener at the same time? Dave. Well, I've never met a, a house sound engineer who would use a house PA system if he's bringing his own system. So I can't think that anybody would really use what they're offering. Now, if you were to do something at the one end of a, an arena or stadium, uh, the sound system in the stadium is meant for everyone to hear everything all at once in a circle, perhaps. And they project in all these areas around where the seating is to make sure people can hear announcements and, and the calls. So. That wouldn't help if you're trying to augment from one end of the stadium. And then you'd have to time it, and they do when they place speakers halfway down the stadium, or you've seen in some of the large venues, there's towers of speakers set away from the stage. Those are timed and, and phased so that they will sound like they're all coming at the same time. It's very difficult in an arena to turn off speakers individually to be able to get that same effect. So I think, you know, they're, they're going to say, yes, you can use our PA system if you want, but I haven't met an engineer yet who would really trust those speakers. And also they've made a huge investment for their show and their own PA system that they probably wouldn't trust it at all. Mitchell? Uh, the thing that makes all of this work and not work uh, is a typical design that uh, any audio engineer would use, and that is delay. 
Um, and, you know, sound traveling at a certain speed, is it just means that the people in the front of the house are going to hear sound a little sooner than the people in the back of the house. Um, but they're also going to hear the speakers from the front at the same time they're hearing speakers right in front of them. So what they usually do is they delay the speakers towards the back of the uh, theater so that there's a coincidence of the uh, sound arriving at the same time. Um, it gets very complicated when you have the house PA trying to lock into the uh, to the uh, uh, the stadium uh, PA system. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, so the the objective is to have everything arriving at the same time, but that takes an awful lot of uh, mathematics and uh, equipment to make that happen. All right, and um, Mickey mentioned in the chat, you measure the distance, add the appropriate delay. That is a constant, the speed of sound uh, for the distance. Let's go to our next question. Next question in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. There is a game-changing fundamental difference between the Mac and the PC version of the Insta360 Link controller software. Has anyone spotted it yet? I remember Paul mentioning this in After Hours, and um, all I remember is Paul said he would never go back to the Windows with the game-changing feature, but I don't recall what it was. And I don't think anyone here has either, so... Paul, well, you'll have to show it to us uh, in after hours. Let's go to our next question. Next question in again from Douglas Carmichael. The Seattle Mariners have a tradition of hydro races or animated racing boats on the stadium screen. How could they simulate specific bodies of water accurately? And how would they be controlling the animation in real time based on external input? John? I would assume that the animation doesn't change based on external input. They probably tell you if you cheer louder for yours, your boat will go faster. But it's probably just a recorded video, and they have a version where each boat wins. <laughs> oh, you know, the true magician never tells. Um, Mitchell? A whole lot of math. I mean, I remember when uh, the first water simulation software came out. It was called Pandemonium. Uh, that was like a, uh, a game changer. But now they got it inter interacting uh, with other things. It boggles the mind. It's true with all the ray tracing and computation that they have today. Um, yeah, just like a, I assume it could be just like a video game. Let's go to our next question. From Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. When the gallery is showing, the panel looks great. Can each panel member share what camera and lights they are using this morning? Um, maybe we can go around... Uh, uh, quickly, so if you want to share, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. So we'll start with TJ. I am using a Insta360 Link uh, cam and a Nanlite 25 light. Guy? Uh, Zcam Me 2 with a Mikey lens going into a, a 4K into a bird dog um, encoder, NDI. I've got a Aperture P300, a ring light from Prismatic, and an Aperture hair light, so three lights. John? Rio camera, no lights. Serge? I have a Sony A6000 with um, a ring light and a lens 24 millimeters with a uh, polarizing lens. Harshid? I have. Uh, Going on uh, camera-wise, Brio uh, turned off auto exposure in the G-Hub software. And then uh, for lighting, I am just using uh, a combination of GE light bulbs in front of me and a Hue light bulb on the left of me. Mark? So I have a Blackmagic Design uh, Pocket Cinema Pro 6K and 
that's with a EF lens, a Canon EF lens, 24 to 70. On either side of me, I have a small NAND light, and I have a Genray light above me. John. Panasonic Lumix G7 for my camera and a couple of lights I picked up on Amazon that are nothing remarkable. Mitchell? I've got a Sony FX3 in front of me, admittedly overkill, uh, but it has that wonderful uh, autofocus that you see happening there. So it uh, takes care of a multitude of problems. Uh, And my main key light uh, is a light panel Astra soft light. And um, I have a Sony a7 III, 85mm lens, custom teleprompter to be able to make that work. I have a key light, which is a um, ring light to my left. I have a fill uh, directly ahead, a hair light uh, right above for rim, and some decoration in back. All right. Fantastic. Well, we had a, a great panel discussion. Thank you for all of our panelists for our first hour. Uh, Stay tuned for our education hour. Um, But we also want to thank all of our producers for all the questions that they've submitted and our crew that helps right now ushering in our education folks so that we can begin that discussion. Um, Let's see. uh, John, what, uh, what do we have planned for today? Thanks, Josh. Today, during our education hour, our panel will be discussing gift ideas for educators. So whether you're thinking of purchasing something for a teacher that teaches you or your family, or if you have a teacher in your life you'd like to find the perfect gift for, uh, we'll be discussing how to pick that perfect present, what kinds of things to avoid, and maybe even get into some specific gift suggestions. Good morning and welcome back. Uh, Welcome to our We've added a few panelists to our crew here, um, some extra special educators. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about the season of gift giving. And I know a lot of people like to give their teachers gifts, and a lot of our teachers like to receive gifts. It's a valid way of showing appreciation. But I wanted to spend an hour or so talking about what are the best ideas if you have an educator in your life, what are some things you might want to avoid, and maybe get into some practical tips and tricks. We have a great panel of educators and non-educators alike here today. And so we'll start off um, just asking the question, what was the best gift you've ever received from a student? So if our uh, educators want to raise their hand, Erin. Oh, one of the best gifts I've ever received is from a student was the fact that they understood me so well that they made a poster size. It was definitely bigger than a piece of computer paper of I made a drawing of all my favorite Disney characters. They knew me well enough to know what they were and they had such precise detail. So I was able to get it laminated and now it's hanging up in my room where I get to see it year after year. But that's absolutely one of my favorite gifts ever received from a student. Well, that one didn't even cost anything. Dave, what are your thoughts on gifts or what's your favorite gift you've ever received? Well, I, I've never actually received a, a gift as such. Nobody's walked up with a wrap present or anything. But uh, I, I, years ago, I used to do a tour of the broadcast center uh, with you know Boy Scout groups and all the rest come in and they want to know how TV's made and everything. And I, and I used to do this pattern and, uh, and I was pretty good at it. And I walked people through and gave little insights on what's going on. And the response I got from one group was they all did a thank you letter. And uh, 
there was this bundle of thank you letters waiting for me the next time I had to come in for it. And I walked through all of them and it seemed, as Aaron said, it was an appreciation of enlightening them into the complex process that was invisible to them as viewers of television. They had absolutely no idea what was involved. Well, yes, there's a lot involved, but the level of appreciation for what they retained from what I was telling them, I was astounded because I guess in an example of what we've talked about before, when you put a person in a situation to receive the information, it's, it's how they feel about it and then how they respond to it that becomes learning. And when I read these things, they were just examples of what each of them had learned. And I thought this was amazing. So it was a gift that I took uh, quite seriously. And that's a great gift. And especially uh, one thing that I've, I've had similar to that, Dave, was um, a thank you and then an acknowledgement saying, I've also th- sent this along to your boss. So it was not just the personal thank you, but it was sent along to higher up so that they knew that I was receiving the thank you. Dr. Clark? Good morning, everyone. Well, my gifts like Dave's uh, were, were mostly uh, delayed by 15 or 20 years. So the, the big surprises were the un, unexpected letters from a former student who was announcing that their daughter, who was born at the end of a class I taught, apparently, in 1982, where she was a student, has now graduated from college as a, an elementary school teacher or a high school teacher, and, and uh, a lot of what she remembered experiencing in my class uh, explains both her career success and her daughter's career choice. So that kind of dear professor so-and-so letter is uh, beyond price. It, it, see, teaching is a lot like uh, being in radio in the old days. You never knew if anybody was listening or remembering what you said or what what you did. Um, But then occasionally you get some evidence that, hey, not only did this strike a chord and is remembered, but it was applied and used and and uh, continues to um, provide value for additional people. So that's that's the biggest uh, high, I think, that a teacher can get. And often we don't remember the de- I don't remember the details. Who was this person? And did I really say something that changed his life or her life? Um, so it, it's uh, another degree of delight. Thanks, Dave. Something you said, John, actually triggered a memory of a gift that I didn't recognize was a gift at the time. Um, I'll just do a little background here, not go too long, but uh, I had a position uh, in the Faculty of Education at the U of A in which I was supporting professors. That is, I'm staff and I make uh, media for professors to use in classroom. And I'd worked with a number of professors in the faculty for years, and then there was some tribulation uh, that I had in my job. Um, I was challenged uh, by a person, and I won't go into the details, but it was a threat to my career. And uh, out of the blue, about a dozen professors wrote letters of support for me. And I never thought 
So yeah, that's that's one of the gifts. Isn't it amazing that um, when we talked about best gifts, all of them have been just a thank you and and acknowledging the effort that we've put in, Aaron. I have to go back to something that you had said earlier, John, about a parent sending an email on to my principal. And I have, I've had a couple of those in the past couple of years. And honestly, it's just, it's the thank you. It's the appreciation. It's like, while I appreciate sometimes, you know, if someone gives me like a cool pen or something like that, knowing that not only do they appreciate me enough to tell me, but that they have to take their time to send a different message, but with the same context to my boss, that takes extra time. And then when your principal shares it back to you and like tagging even higher up administration, <laughs> it's just that appreciation that just keeps on going. It just makes you feel good. So everyone write a letter this afternoon. Um, (laughs) When you, when panel, when we're thinking of like how to approach gift giving, if I'm a a parent of a student or if I am a student, what are some things I should be thinking about? I think Aaron, you started talking about knowing the teacher and knowing what they like, but how should I approach gift giving? So approaching gift giving, um, It's kind of difficult to put into words sometimes, but when we think about when we give gifts to our families and our friends, we don't just go to the store and pick out the first thing we see on the shelf and say, oh, it matches the, you know, $10 limit. Let's go with it. We think about the person and we say, what do they like? What do they don't? What don't they like? Um, Things like that. I remember the year I was remote. The running joke in our class was that I love drinking tea. So you'll see my mug sometimes come across. So not only did I get a beautiful mug, um, a travel mug with my name on it, with the Disney castle on it, all my students started drinking tea on, <laughs> on, the, on our Google Meet. And then for Christmas, I gave them a mug with a couple of my favorite, at least like one um, sample of my favorite tea some hot cocoa for those that don't like it, um, that don't like tea. And we were able to extend that throughout the year. So my students then knew me for the end of the year, and some of them gave me the most beautiful tea sets. I got this beautiful um, glass tea mug with like a beautiful, um, ooh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, the mesh that you can put loose leaf tea into. I'm blanking on the name of it, but it was absolutely... Something like that, exactly. And um, other students got me actual tea that they wanted me to try and see if I liked it. So it's just, it was kind of a a cyclical thing in our class that they saw me drinking it, thought it was cool. They started drinking it. Circle of life there. And for our producers who are out there... um thinking of other questions to be asking about gift giving. I do also want to point out that if everyone gives mugs all the time, then you end up with a cupboard full of mugs, which I have a cupboard full of mugs of gifts, which are always nice and appreciated, but I don't have space for all of them. And so I think um, the idea of having a custom tea or custom coffee, if your teacher's a coffee or tea drinker, at least that gets consumed and so it's gone. Um, So that's actually one thing that can be really helpful as well, something that you know will get consumed and out of the way and appreciated as well. Dave? 
Well, on the question of giving gifts, yes, I've done that actually. Um, when I was in uh, technical school learning media, uh, one of our classes was mass communications, and that's a pretty boring subject for people who really just want to get after it and be radio announcers and everything else. And he was a fairly dull teacher, and uh, people just sort of slept through his class. And I didn't really absorb what he had to say and what he was telling us about in the readings we did for that whole year, that whole term. And it was years later, I was working in television, and I did a little experiment, a little trick uh, with television. And it had a huge impact on the audience. In fact, uh, I made the phones light up at the station whenever that thing played. People were quite concerned about it and took the effort to phone in and tell us they can't stand that thing. Please take it off the air. So I uh, realized that the effect that my video was having on the audience was that I was putting something on that had um, image but no content. It was a thing viewed for five minutes in which nothing happened. And doing that to an audience is tricky because we were doing it to fill time. When, when a show goes short on broadcast, they'd play what's called an interstitial, some sort of musical interlude, and then you'd get to the station ID and then go to the next show. And I was my role was to make these short little pieces, uh, little slices of life of the city we live in. Well, this one shot... Uh, was so intriguing. Uh, we put it on, and whenever the guys played it to fill, the phones lit up, and I got a notorious reputation. Well, I got thinking about it one day, about why is this happening? And I realized my instructor had actually taught us about this and the difference between a medium and its content, the famous McLuhan thing, that the medium is the message, not the content. And I suddenly twigged in everything he had taught us about mass media, I was now keying in. This is actual reality, and I'm, I'm using it. And so I got back in touch with him after many years, and I bought him a book. Uh, it was Knots by R.D. Lang. And if anybody knows R.D. Lang, he's a psychiatrist who wrote a couple of books about people and how, how we think and how emotions fit into everything we do. And... Um, I, I really love this book, and I, I thought, geez, you know, i got to give this to my professor. So I did eventually deliver it to him, and we became fast friends, actually. We went for lunch a couple of times a year, every year after that. And, and it's been almost 40 years since he taught me, and uh, it, it cemented our relationship because I was the only student pretty much that came back to him afterwards and says, I get what you were talking about, and here's how it affected my life. And then he and I would have lovely debates, and it was a great friendship. So I guess it, it was the only time I've given a, a teacher a gift, uh, but it was well worthwhile, and uh, it was in recognition of what he'd done to change my view of the world. That's awesome. And for our last opening discussion question, what's a sure thing gift, the kind of gift that, if you don't know what else to give a teacher, that will be appreciated and uh, acknowledged and won't be something that is a burden to that person. And I'll give a specific example. Almost everybody I know has a favorite pen. And a lot of times um, they go buy a whole box of their own favorite pens. It's not in their 
custom budget. I like a Zebra Sarasa pen, but most pen companies will have like a metal pen body. And so one gift I received is this pen here. It's a metal Zebra Sarasa and it was like five or $10, but it's a nice pen with my favorite refill already. So to receive something like this, where it's like, you noticed what I like and you got me a nice version of it is a nice way to say, I'm paying attention and thank you. So what other ideas do we have in that vein, Aaron? So, John, I got a very similar pen to that, except for it was a Disney pen, very nice weighted pen with my name on it. And these adorable like pink and white little gems that you could kind of see through at the top. It was beautiful. But if you are kind of like last minute, like I really want to get them something, but I don't know what to get them. Even something as simple as like a gift card. Like most teachers like caffeine in some way, shape or form. So anything like Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, um, something basic like Target or Amazon. Um, there was one parent one year that get, that got me, they said they had to go to Staples the night before. And I said, and I'm so happy about this because they got me, they knew my favorite color was pink. So they went to Staples and got me um, like 10 Expo markers that were just pink and tied them up in a ribbon with my name on the ribbon and just sent it in that way. And I said, that was absolutely amazing. So they thought of me, but it was something quick that they could just pick up at Staples on the way home. Fantastic gift. That's great. And everyone loves Starbucks. Well, not everyone loves Starbucks, but even people who are coffee snobs, they know that if they go to another city, they know what they get with Starbucks. And so uh, I would generally recommend that um, as far as gift cards go. Dr. Clark? My favorite gift both uh, as a recipient and a giver is a good story. Uh, teachers, and I think most of us, love a good story. And if they're an actor in the story, someone I'm expressing a story of appreciation or something cute or interesting that uh, one of my kids when they were in school did at home that their teacher would be interested in. Uh, but they wouldn't otherwise have access to it. So I, I take care to write those up. And I think a handwritten um, story inside a card that, you know, wishes you season's greetings or, or whatever the generic uh, reason to say thank you is, um, goes a long way. And I think the stories are both um, heartwarming to the recipient, but also possibly useful um, in because uh, teachers want to be able to tell stories, to pass these on to their colleagues and their peers and, and their principal or whomever. And the more uh, positive stories they have to work with, uh, the, the better their contribution to the community of educators. Thank you, Dr. Clark. And you can put and in this, a Starbucks card, too. <laughs> and throw in a Starbucks card. Um, and our story today doesn't end with just us and what we want to talk about. It's about our producers who are watching live and putting into Mukana chat their questions. So let's go ahead and move into our questions. What's our first question, Dave? Our first question comes from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. He's asking, as an educator, how do you feel about accepting gifts from students or parents? And then, of course, we've okay. already heard some of the feeling level, but uh, anyone want to add more? Aaron? 
So I never expect anything from my students or my parents. Um, I appreciate a nice thank you. Um, but I know sometimes it can be kind of a dicey area, especially for those who um, are kind of struggling, especially around the holidays and they're trying to save for different things. But the more basic, going back to what Dr. Clark has said about writing a letter, we can give you a pen and we can give you a piece of paper. So it would cost absolutely nothing. But overall, we, I while I enjoy it, I understand that a note is just as, makes me feel just as good as a Starbucks card. Dr. Clark? Well, I've never been insulted by a gift. Um, I, it's not the object, if there's an object involved, like a, a book or a pen. Uh, it's the it's the con the relationship. It shows um, an eagerness to connect, acknowledge, uh, thank um, the recipient for whatever they're thanking them for, um, and I think that's. So I I'm not worried about it. I mean, you have you have to be thoughtful about it and not. Um, underdo it or overdo it. <laughs> um, that's, that's the delicate part. So usually when I receive a gift, it's from someone who's come to know me well enough to hit the sweet spot, not something that's extravagantly elaborate and expensive or the, or the opposite. It's, it's trivial and it doesn't seem to have much thought behind it that's positive. So I think it's fine as long as it doesn't turn into a, a competition among, let's say, the parents or the, the students who are trying to uh, one-up one another with, with elaborate gifts. That's, that's not healthy, in my opinion. And Dr. Clark, how would you be able to recognize um, that it's becoming a competition? And what would you do if you saw that happening? Well, I, I actually have seen it in um, private schools um, where, in a sense, there's a, um, an ethos or a, a competition among parents for the, uh, the favor and attention of the staff on behalf of the parents, uh, the gift givers, um, children who are the students. So the, the whole uh, culture in that case was more like a, an obsolete variation on the, uh, the Lord of the Manor and the village school and school teacher being um, competed for influence um, by the by the parents who who care very much about their children's uh, succeeding and being being best boy or best girl so that as to how you um, fight against that I think um, you know it would be different in each context but I think the basic idea is to my values are to 
make it a more uh, egalitarian learning community, move in that direction rather than um, electing a best boy and a best girl and, and uh, feeding the competition. Um, you're the, you're more the, the coach, not the, not the judge or umpire. Anyway. Hmm. Yeah. I never even thought of uh, people using gifts as leverage to advance their children. And I, I mean, that's something that I just never even considered. I think um, for my answer to this question, I think it's important to recognize that for some people, how they demonstrate love or connection is by giving gifts and to spurn that it can hurt the other person. So to just flat out say no to an individual, you have to be really careful about that because some people might hear that as, uh, I don't care about you. Um, on the other hand, the, it's just a thing. And I think we should treat it as such. It, it's a helpful thing for those who want to do it. And it should be appreciated um, when done. I, now that Dr. Clark said that when done, I think within um, some parameters of appropriateness or propriety. Um, I'm not sure exactly what those are. Dr. Clark? One thought I just had is that um, when the gift is something like a, a fruit basket or a, a Whitman sampler box of chocolates, um, a great way to distribute, <laughs> distribute the love is to, to bring that to class and share it with everyone instead of saying, oh, we're t I'm taking this home and this is mine and this is for my, my private use. Let's say it's a it, turn it into a gift to the community rather than um, something that uh, sets you apart from the community. Yeah, and if you put it in the teachers' lounge, then all, lounge, then all the other teachers know that you're the favorite. <laughs> uh, what's our next question, Dave? Our next question comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What about an invitation to dinner out, or a gift card, or such? Aaron. I love this idea. Um, there was a year, a couple of years ago, that a friend of mine was telling me that she had a, cl a class parent that basically collected, you know, a couple of dollars from each family that was able to, and they were able to give her a, like a $25 gift card to one of her favorite restaurants. So that way the kids knew what it was. So that's the relationship aspect. And then the parents were able to even if it was just a dollar, they were able to put in something to show their teacher appreciation. So I think that's a great idea because it makes all the connections, but it also is something that's consumable, that is very um, thoughtful. Dave? Um, yeah. Um, sorry, I kind of blanked out on that a little bit. Uh, I think it's interesting to give someone an experience as a gift. And so, yeah, for Roscoe's purposes, a dinner out, a movie uh, pass or something, uh, a gift card or such. We dealt with gift cards a little earlier. But um, I got a surprise gift for helping out um, an insurance company who were building a website to deal with nonprofits. And I was working with a nonprofit at the time, and when I came across this website, it had huge flaws in it. And as someone who knew how these things are built, I just sort of called in and said, would it be helpful if I gave you everything that's kind of wrong with this website and with suggestions on how to fix it? 
And they were just, you know, kind of like, well, okay, we don't know who you are, but go ahead. And they said, well, you know, do you do this for a living and all that? And I said, yeah, but I'll just do it for you. And I just work for cookies. And then I went on and I wrote up this couple of pages of how to fix things and suggesting code and things. And the next time the site was revised, uh, they asked me to sort of test it, run it through its paces and see if everything fixed. And I reported back that it seemed to be working fine except for one color issue. And then they fixed that and the uh, nonprofits began using this web interface to do their insurance. And about two weeks after this was all over, I'd totally forgotten about it, a big pile of a box of cookies uh, showed up at my door and it was a welcome surprise. It was like, oh, okay, they really took me seriously. I work for cookies. But the humor of it was was caught on me. That, uh, And as Aaron says, you know, when they get to know what your proclivities are, where you make silly jokes and stuff, they can kind of turn it around on you and make you feel good. Thank you. Chris? Well, one little cautionary note is that I don't think we want to give gifts to teachers or educators that complicate their lives. Um, you mentioned the storage challenge with 30,000 cups that you've experienced. Each cup is a wonderful gift, but altogether it's, it uh, complicates your, your storage scheme. And I, I like the distinction between a gift card for a nice dinner out with your partner to a teacher. Um, but it's a little trickier to invite them to join you for dinner uh, because it, it's a whole complicated, we we'll have to find the time to do this. We have to be on our best behavior, whatever, whatever social and relational challenges arise. Um, make it one more thing for the teacher to do or to to be concerned about. And so um, if we can bear that in mind, that a gift is supposed to be uh, something to make your life a little brighter, but not a, a responsibility that you have to uh, respond to in a timely manner and to get your shirt your best shirt sent off to the dry cleaner to be starched and uh, make you look super presentable and so forth. Yeah, a, a gift can quickly become an obligation. So don't get a gift that about the person you want them to become. Get a gift for who they are. Uh, from the chat, Adam Mitchell says, an invitation out becomes a complication unless perhaps you invite multiple people from the school as a group di dinner and then don't show up and only cover the bill by phone. Alex Lindsay from the chat says, my daughter makes her teachers intricately ornate thank you cards that she makes from scratch. They're very well received. So a lot of uh, similar things to what we've said previously. Next question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. I've gotten my cousin who teaches at a private school interested in office hours, and she wants to improve her online presentation. She's a Mac user. So what would be a cost-effective first step into our world? I think it depends quite a bit on what you mean by cost-effective. Um, Harshid, what's your idea? My first thing is audio always comes first in many instances. So no matter what meeting you're having, the communication level should be up to par. And your intelligibility comes in, comes in from microphone usage. Uh, when we're using Mac and other things, we hear room noise, we hear other tones. 
and our brain tends to take those tones and not know what to do with it. And then we're kind of siphoning out the important information with other information. So I would say a microphone is a good start, um, depending on if you're going to go USB or if you're going to get it complex. Uh, the video, you know, it, it's a is dependable. We listen to uh, podcasts that don't have video. We listen to podcasts that do have video. So if you take those two infer- inferences as they are, we you want to make sure no matter what device, if it's a Mac, PC, or what have you, that you're able to at least communicate your um, your thoughts clearly, and you will get some impress. You know, people are impressed with that audio quality compared to the daily everyone's on the apple airpod using the microphone off there and then it's rubbing against their shirt and then you hear the little you know the the movement of the microphone on the shirt so i would highly recommend audio first and go from there and uh when it comes to audio there's a couple of different interfaces you might have a microphone that plugs straight into usb uh, which is the easiest for teachers to use uh, but it has some limitations be careful if you get an xlr microphone which is the big thick uh, cord you see coming out of my microphone. My microphone can be both. It's a Shure MV7. It's about $250. Usually you can get it on sale for $230, which is quite an expense. Um, but you can also get small headset mics or anything that gets a, like on a boom that gets the microphone very close makes a tremendous difference in the quality at usually a pretty low price point. So it depends a lot. And uh, join us in office hours and ask questions of our expert panel any morning to get different ideas on what the best microphones are. Uh, Chris? Well, I just need to second what you just said, uh, John. Um, I'm still using a a little pile microphone that um, I was taught early in my office hours experience. uh, Took advantage of the law of physics, which is the closer the mic is to your lips, the better uh, the audio and the less background noise gets picked up. So, uh, and this this cost something like $20 from Amazon a year and a half ago. So that that was wonderful. And it plugs right into a USB port on my Mac uh, laptop. And I've got, since then, I've gotten uh, a Logitech webcam that clips to the top of the screen on my MacBook. It's still a very elementary setup, but it's 40% or 50% better than it was when I was working with the built-in webcam on the on this 15-year-old or 10-year-old Mac. And, um, you know, that, that camera didn't give a very clear uh, image. So uh, back in the day when we were all quarantined and schools were closed, um, we had uh, office hours had published uh, a list of sort of the, the basics for teachers and maybe at two price points. And I think that that list is still available and it can probably be uh, pointed to in the, te- in the uh, chat. Um, for for people who are uh, beginners uh, at let's how can I up my game without um, going into debt? So uh, let me put that out there as a request that we we refresh, especially during uh, education hour each week, that we republish or publish a link to that um, 
recommended list of upgrades beyond what comes packaged with your laptop. Yeah, I think Roscoe Jones helped uh, coordinate that list originally, and it's in Discord, if I'm not mistaken. I also believe there's a group of people who are updating a general list of equipment as well. Harshid? Yes, uh, that's what I want to talk about. Uh, Tom Ferguson and uh, a bunch of us have uh, joined in on our breakout room yesterday, and there's going to be more to come. And just to make a list of anything from you know the entry-level budget cost to mid-range to uh, the high end, and then the, the the namesake we're using is for oh my gosh or ludicrous uh, pricing of equipment because it is after all after office hours. So uh, if you would like, uh, I would highly recommend joining on after hours. If you go to officehours.global, go under schedule. There's a link for after hours if you want to get there quickly, and that way you could just come in and ask your questions. Mac, PC, Linux, it, it, people come from different. Uh, planks of life and they use different pieces of equipment so i would definitely uh, recommend to come into after hours and to maybe join in on your recommendations uh, i was holding up a microphone earlier it's a samson q2 mic and this microphone is uh excuse me 80 dollars roughly and it goes on sale and i'm not sure if the camera's picking it up but i just wanted to show the back end of it so you have a headphone jack like a little dot there so you could you could stick in a pair of headphones to monitor yourself and how you sound. There's a little slit there, and that plugs in a micro USB. Uh, some might have a USB-C. And then there, there are three little prongs that, that kind of stick out, and that's what is known as the XLR port. So, you know, there are different functionalities. The cost for the Q2U, it's one of those sleeper microphones where a lot of people say it sounds awesome. Uh, Serge was on earlier, and that's what he uses on the panel. So if you're just trying to get something to at least sound a little bit better, it's a good entry level. Q9U, another good one, but uh, definitely recommend coming in. And, and thank you so much for Tom Ferguson to, you know, bring out the idea of we need to figure out these uh, recommendations of what should we buy and and you know, from camera, audio, and other gear. So uh, look forward to that list. Uh, join us on Discord, and all that information will be there. Thanks. And Roscoe Jones in the chat, who's joining us today, is saying, lighting, most people have a mic and camera already. Uh, improving someone's light makes a huge difference. I will add uh, my two cents. One thing that a lot of people don't have that can benefit from is a simple remote for presentations. And this is a Logitech remote. I really like this particular model. It's about $50. It makes a huge difference in your ability to use hand gestures while you're trying to talk on camera. And it's something a lot of teachers won't have, and it's not super expensive to uh, purchase. Next question. Our next question comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What about a small toolbox for the classroom? or hand-painted basic tools like a small hammer, etc. Go ahead, Dave. I guess my reaction was that, you know, I would visit the classroom, spend some time with the kids, see what they're doing and what the teachers are up to, and then put something in the classroom that augments that or look for something they're missing. And if they're missing something, then maybe fill in by getting it as a gift. Uh, of course, you know, teachers are good to consult about what the classroom might need. And if a toolbox is, is acceptable to the teacher, then that would be a great gift. Yes. And Aaron. One of my coworkers actually got me a little toolbox. Um, well, it was more of like a bag. And it had in it a hammer that 
um, had a screwdriver at the end of it. So you could unscrew it and it had um, a flathead and a Phillips that you could use either one. Um, also an eyeglass um, screwdriver kit. It came with um, another screwdriver that was bigger um, in case it was a bigger um, job to do. But anything like the command hooks, like those um, things you can hang up things around the room, I think that's an absolute necessity. I think that's a great gift for a first-year teacher even. Thank you. Chris? I just wanted to second the idea from Roscoe. I love the idea of a, a small toolbox and and a, think of it as a starter set too. You don't have to overload it with every tool that I love, or but it's a it's a nice little place that um, you put things that come in handy, and you'll discover over the years what you really wish you wanted to add to your toolbox or subtract if you find you haven't used one of the tools for a long time, and maybe it's not really necessary. So it's a it's a great idea, but of course it it varies with people. Some people love tools and love to have tools and kind of have a Swiss army knife mentality and want to be able to tinker with things and do things uh, themselves. And others don't, I've discovered. So um, you need to think about who the, who the recipient is. And what I know uh, Roscoe's daughter is a teacher, so he knows her pretty well and I'll bet he's given her a perfect toolbox for her classroom. Um, but it'll vary with uh, who, who your recipient is and how well you know them. I never even thought about uh, cultivating my toolbox. I just keep adding to it. I've never taken a tool away, I don't think ever. It's a great idea. Uh, what's our next question, Dave? Our next question comes from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's asking, in education, what is the gift that keeps on giving? Go ahead, Chris. Well, I must confess that I've prepared for this session. I didn't know which question uh, I, my prepared answer would, would speak to, but I think it's Josh's question. And I think that the gift that keeps on giving is respect, appreciation, and patience. That's, that's the package. They come in a nicely packaged trio. And uh, most of these uh, relational gifts uh, can be packaged as stories. Stories that, so to speak, have shine a light on my respect for you as a teacher and your preparation, your expertise, your dedication. Um, Whatever it is, whatever the specific is that that uh, invited this expression of respect. Likewise, with appreciation, um, our kids, uh, when they went through school, were all involved in music programs of some kind, and uh, our deepest appreciation came toward the teachers who taught the beginner music classes in school. The sixth grade band was memorable for uh, sounding terrible at the beginning of the year and only slightly less terrible at the end of sixth grade, uh, but better, different. But, but we recognized, I don't know how we were inspired to recognize that the 
the heroism of the sixth grade band teacher made it possible for the high school band and orchestra to bloom and blossom and and the kids to perform uh, inspiring work by the time they were older and had more experience and, and more tutelage from additional music teachers. So, so we got that and uh, we showed up for the sixth grade band concerts, even though there was some teeth gritting involved. And, uh, and that appreciation expressed to Mr. Tut um, lasts till this day. It keeps on giving both to our kids, but also, I hope, to Mr. Tut. And the final one is patience. Um, I think in our, in our workaday lives, we expect things to be done right away and see, treat that as a virtue, that, that our, our employees or our colleagues or ourselves are expected to snap, hop to and, and make, make a difference, make a change, make, make things happen. And that's not the way it works with, with children. Uh, children have developmental trajectories that have a longer lead time, a longer wavelength than um, the get it done culture of some other parts of our, our world. So let's be patient. Let's, let's not jump on teachers, uh, but let's, Let's uh, tune in to the rhythm of the years and of child and adolescent development, which takes, always takes longer than we wish. Thank you. Dave? For me, the key gift that keeps on giving with people I've been either mentoring or coaching or helping get into the career is to see them succeed and to have pride in their achievements. Uh, that just makes me happy, is seeing them move forward and become really good at what they do and know where they started from is really wonderful. And I think also, you know, if you talk to Tony Mobley, you know, he quite often acknowledges just how little he knew about being a panelist on Office Hours and how helpful everybody was. And he continually has gratitude to those who came along and showed him the ropes or helped him make progress. And so I feel that's the gift that keeps on giving. And Aaron. So I'll do the one that kind of goes with what Dave and Chris have said. Um, the gift that keeps on giving for me are the students that come back to see me year after year. So case in point, in the mornings, we have two doors that the students can go in in the morning and then go to their classrooms. And the number of fourth graders who go to the third grade door to walk up the stairs, give me a hug every morning, and then go down to the other side of the building for their class is absolutely heartwarming. And I love seeing them every morning. And even if I'm running late, I make sure I'm there when those kids are coming up those stairs. Um, but the more, the I guess the funnier answer would be for me, the um, auto auto um, reshipment of Diet Coke to my classroom, because that's what I need on a daily basis. Coke of the day. How about you, Hashid? So I wanted to go back to Dr. Car Dr. Clark's uh, message there. Respect, appreciation, and patience. Uh, they're really important. And I think what I bring back to 
just teaching even adults and from my childhood is the fact that we want to feel valued. So I think value in its own, no matter what the purpose might be, uh, brings in much more fundamental gifts. So my knowledge in, let's say, accessibility and then someone asking me more and more questions, I definitely get that, you know, endorphin rush of like, oh, I'm important enough that this person cares to ask more and wants to know more. So, you know, I think we must value each other for sure. But, you know, giving a little bit more, uh, uh, what's the word, like respect and appreciation towards it is uh, definitely a valuable feeling. And as Aaron has mentioned, just having that, you know, they they they've not might, might not be in your class or they might not be around you, but that return business almost that uh, hey we appreciated that one statement you said uh, you know three weeks ago that really changed my life. So I think valuing individuals is another giving of a gift. Thank you all. Next question. Our next question is from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. What's a great gift for distance educators? Aaron. I would say a, a subscription or at least part of a subscription for a service that they use frequently. So whether it's something like GoodNotes or Notability, if they're using their iPad to draw on it for um, Telestration um, or something that they use frequently in the classroom. Like I know one year a parent um, gave us a little bit of extra money to help with the subscription for a yoga program for the kids that there are videos that they watch, but I think it was like $60 a year. So they sent in, you know, $10 to help with that cost. So I think anything like that is excellent for distance educators. Yeah, it's a great idea. Subscriptions are the gift that keep on giving as well, I suppose, in some ways. Uh, Chris. In one of the, the uh, distance education courses that I taught a couple of years ago, we had students from all over the world um, participating. This was through Arizona State University. And the greatest uh, gift that those students gave me, several of them, was to, in a sense, invite me into their homes to see through Zoom or through some other uh, distance medium, uh, either a description or an actual visual of the context in which they were living and working and um, tell little stories about what they're doing as educators in Kuwait or in Japan or anywhere in between. So that gave me a, a much more visualizable sense of, of who these names are. They weren't just uh, student numbers and names, but they were, um, there was a more richly filled out image of who they were and, and where they came from and, and what what the circumstances were in which they were living and learning. Great. Uh, I have two suggestions at varying budget points. If it's for someone close to you, like a, a family member or friend, and you want to buy them something nice, I'd strongly recommend a, an ATEM Mini. They're about $300, and they allow you to um, have multiple HDMI inputs in, and convert those into a webcam signal. So you can have multiple computers or television screens or DVD player playing into one device, and you can switch between them so that you can have on your webcam display pop out all sorts of different things. It also has a chroma keyer, which lets you do uh, green screen effects, as well as a luma key if you want to do uh, telestration or drawing on the screen. So it's a really handy device. Um, 
especially for those who have something that can output to HDMI. You can even plug your cell phone into it, typically with the right uh, adapter, and use your cell phone as a, as a webcam. For a lower price uh, idea, I have a one, it's a, I don't know how to describe it. It's a green, it's made of the same fabric as green screen, and it covers your entire body. It's like a, one of those onesie costumes. And it's surprisingly fun to play pranks on people when you can become invisible. And so there's all sorts of different things you can do with that um, as sort of a gag kind of a gift. What's our next question? From Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, how about a personal note explaining how your child has benefited from the teacher's work? Go ahead, Chris. Yes, that's priceless. And, uh, you know, it takes a little time and it, it's affirmative. Um, the notes that teachers get aren't always affirmative notes about um, your child. So, so this is a refreshing uh, difference, and it's probably going to be kept in that teacher's middle drawer forever uh, because it's it's really priceless. So, absolutely. And Aaron. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. I still have the majority of notes that my students have given me over the years. Um, there was an incident where I spilled like water all over my desk and there were the letters there. So they couldn't be saved sadly. But what I do is that um, whatever year they give it to me, I keep it up and I post it up on my bulletin board next to my desk so I can look at it throughout the year. But then at the end of the year, I will scan it and add it to a folder on my desktop Um that's I think I, I change it every year, but one year it was um, like dopamine. And whenever I needed it, I have parent emails, uh, student pictures, scans of their notes that they've given me over the years. So that if you're having a really rough day, you know, all you have to do is open it up and be like, okay, I am good at what I do. This is a good reminder. Even if I've had a really rough day, I know I'm doing good. So those are absolutely crucial. Scanning those things in is a great idea. I suppose you could even use like your cell phone and just take a picture of it and create a folder of dopamine as well. Uh, next question. Our next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. Those that work in publicly funded schools, how do you respond when you receive gifts that you cannot accept? Chris? Well, it's a tricky, tricky arrangement, um, tricky situation. My sense, intuitive sense, is uh, somehow to turn it into a gift to the school um, from away from a personal gift. I think this is the way it's handled at the White House, for example. Presidents receive gifts from all over the world, from other governments and and public figures. And the idea is that you, the the president or staff turn it over to the National Archives, I guess. Uh, but you don't, you don't insult the giver by sending it back, so to speak. You accept it and perhaps explain that um, I cannot retain this for my personal use, but, um, but we appreciate it and we're going to put it in the archives of the National Gallery and, and we're very grateful for the the uh, thought that went into this and, and we're honored by that. So thank you very much. Uh, that's on a different scale, of course, than what uh, teachers are likely to receive 
but I think it's important to, 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 to be thankful, to be grateful to the giver and to, and to explain that um, this is going to do good for more than just me. This, this is going to be spread out. The benefit of this gift will be spread out throughout the, uh, the school or the organization. Erin? So, yeah, we have um, in Massachusetts, we have a law that says that public um, public servants cannot receive a gift of $50 or more. Um, so when that has happened to me in the past, um, a parent might give me a $50 gift card, for example. I will um, use half of that for the classroom and send them a note back. Like I always send thank you notes back, handwritten thank you notes. And I say, thank you so much for your super generous gift. Half or $25 of this was spent on new crayons for the classroom or new expo markers for the classroom. And then, you know, I don't have to share with them what I got with the other half of it. But, um, but yeah, we've actually had a situation where a parent gave a friend of mine actually a hundred dollar gift card. And they didn't know what to do with it. So what they did was that they knew the family really well and they knew um, of a charity that they would like to, that they support. So they took 60 of that $100 and they put it towards that charity in the family's name and then sent the, um, had them send the thank you from the charity to the family, not to me or to the, I'm sorry, to my friend. And because of that, they were able to still accept because it was less than 50 at that point, but they were also doing something really nice for the family. Uh, Roscoe Jones is also saying gifts are usually given at the end of the semester to not affect grading, which I think is a wise decision there. Um, I think um, from what Aaron was saying, that's a pretty common standard is about $50 as far as individual gifts from um, employees or uh, friends or family. I'm not family, excuse me in a public company as well as uh, in a school setting. So I think that you're generally going to be safe if it's a small dollar item and make sure that you're following along with your school's um, policies, procedures, as far as reporting, documenting, especially if you have to document how you spent things uh, because you might be required to say, uh, this shows that this money was put towards the school. Next question. This question's from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. He's asking, what's a great gift for a techie teacher? Aaron, what's a great gift for a techie teacher? Uh, I go back to the subscriptions thing. If it's from a student or a parent, um, from a friend or family member that, you know, is able to spend a little bit more on you, I do agree that the, um, the ATEM Mini is a great thing to have. Also, um, your iPad and Apple Pencil, I think those are absolutely key for any digital teacher in your life. Chris? I, judging from my own experience, I think a great gift is an invitation to become a panelist on the education hour of office hours. And as by being drawn into this lovely community we have here, I think uh, a techie teacher, a teacher with a gift for using technology will be drawn into upgrading their uh, tech and sharing uh, their wisdom and experience with us and and hundreds of other viewers so so let's let's get some more company on the panel here 
Yes, and for anyone, any of our producers watching, if you'd like to join the panel, uh, feel free to uh, reach out and join us in our Discord to find out how, as well as if you'd like to volunteer in office hours. The weekends are a great way to learn a new skill. I know one of the questions that Gift that keeps on giving is if you learn how these online productions work, you'll be better at your job. If you practice being on the panel, you'll be better at answering questions in a live environment, especially virtually. Um, so all of these gifts are ways that you can increase your skills. I think uh, you don't have to give teachers gifts that are about school either. And I want to make sure we also recognize that. So uh, we gave mostly gifts that are applicable to the classroom, but I know a lot of people who would um, you know, have all sorts of different things that they would benefit from. And the best gift is one that thinks about the person and is applicable to them and shows that you appreciate them, you know who they are, and that you care about what they like as well. Thank you, panelists, for joining us today. Uh, it's always great to see you and hear your conversations about how we can, in office hours, help teachers be better at their jobs. Uh, thank you to our crew, uh, both on the back end today, who are helping manage questions as well as uh, putting in chats, cutting the cameras, uh, those skills that we were just talking about that you can learn. We couldn't do it without you, especially those of you in training, learning to do something new. We appreciate you. Uh, there's also our producers who are asking the questions, putting a lot of good comments in the chat. We appreciate you, and we hope to see you again next week when we talk about immersive media with Dave Troutman. Have a great week, everybody. Uh, this week, we traveled to 25,983 questions if we were to fly from question to question. And that would have been a lot more difficult without the advent of Zoom. So we appreciate our producers, panelists, and crew. We hope to see you again next week. Well, that kind of put me in the Christmas spirit. How about you guys? Likewise. Those are some great stories. Thank you all for sharing them. Wrote a smile to my heart. Though if you're going to get a camera for your educator, maybe don't get a Panasonic Lumix G7 because it goes out of focus very easily, especially if you have a Shure MB7 microphone and it thinks that's the right spot to focus on. Remember, by the RE20 that Aaron is using, it's a really, really, really good microphone. John, have you ever pushed it down out of view and tried that? <laughs> then it's too far away.